seated. Take one of the titled chains, the Eric of Muscles, his cracked lips, his burning cheeks, the dry taste of thirst whispering its grit into his mouth. The sounds were dull, hidden by a cottony blanket. His sense of hearing was stuck, as was tracked by both chains and the drug that was administered to him. Slowly, a table came into view, and a gross man on the other side, and the remains of a meal in front of him. Duke Leto felt himself sitting in a chair across from the Baron. Chains, straps that held his tingling body in the chair. You can hear me, Duke Leto, the Baron said. I know you can hear me. This is not a child's game we play, the Baron rumbled. Leto recalled a thing his general had once said, seeing the Baron. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. This is an excerpt from Frank Herbert's famous 1965 science fiction novel, Dune, where it talks about this desert planet, Arrakis, where houses battled for control, where giant monster sandworms traversed the planet and swallowed up anything in their path. And it's about Duke Leto and how he is murdered by this baron, but then his son, Pyrotrades, would hopefully be the Messiah that would seek redemption. Through such a vivid imagery in Herbert's gigantic book, Dune, he attempted to explain the current geopolitical strife and the human condition. Today, we are also going to see very weird, vivid imagery, as you might see in science fiction novels, monsters in battles, in throne rooms, and the Son of Man. And we'll get a view of a cosmic battle for the world. If you're going to hear anything today, I think this is what we can get from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, we are given a heavenly lens to see the terror of the dreadful enemies and the hope in God's victory plan. Daniel 7, the curtain is separated. And we see heavenly and the terror of the dreadful enemies and again the hope in God's victory plan. Well, are you ready for this ride? It's quite a ride, Daniel chapter 7. It's quite interesting. Probably something maybe you've not read before. But let's look at it together, shall we? Daniel chapter 7. Let's put it in your worship guide too. We're going to look at the first 15 verses this morning. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings, were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was called, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on his back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. Well, you join us. Welcome. I'm sorry, I guess I might say too, but uh, quite exciting. We've gone through the book of Daniel all this fall, and now we're into this section. If you don't know much about Daniel, again, it's Israelites in exile. They've been taken away 500 miles northeast to Babylon. In the six chapters we looked before chapter 7, it documents 70 years of their exile in Babylon, specifically Daniel and his three friends. And they've experienced two different kingdoms, the Babylonians and the Persians, and three different rulers that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 1 through 6. If you've been observing, you'll notice in the first six chapters there's these couplets or parallel stories that are in the book of Daniel. We've got the fiery furnace... 
and we have the lion's den. Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing that uh, horrible torture. And then Daniel facing the torture of the lion's den and both being rescued. And again, these two chapters show faithfulness and persecution, one of those major themes in those two chapters. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we see another parallel and couplet. We see a dream given and vision given to two different kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. We see interpretation of his dream and vision, and we see the wickedness of these kings. And through these two stories in chapter 4 and 5, we see a theme of corruption of the worldly kingdoms versus God's kingdom. Then today, chapter 7 also has a couplet, a parallel. Chapter 2. In chapter 2, we saw Nebuchadnezzar was anxious about a dream that he had, about a statue that had four elements, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, describing four different kingdoms. Today, we don't have Nebuchadnezzar with a dream, but instead, Daniel. And he is also anxious, and he is alarmed. But instead of four different elements, we have four beasts, representing four different kings. In chapter 2, the emphasis was on the power of the kingdom that is eventually overpowered by the kingdom of God. Here in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, we see a focus on the wickedness of the kingdoms of man, but how they are outlasted by the righteous kingdom of God. Chapter 7 is a transition chapter. And we see here that from chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book, we are going to go back in time of what's happened with Daniel and his friends in four different visions that Daniel has, which typically is called apocalyptic visions. We see in chapter 7 that we go back in time to Belshazzar. And here in that period of time, when still it was the Babylonians ruling, there was a rise of another nation coming to power, the Persians. And the questions that probably the Israelites in exile were wondering is, will we actually get out of exile with this new kingdom rising? What is going to happen with this other kingdom coming? And when we are dispersed, what will we face? So these are kind of the questions that the Israelites are having. And this is what makes sense with Daniel and what he is seeing in chapter 7 is God is pulling back the curtain in technicolor, in visions, in imagery. He's giving us the cosmic battle that is going on at that time. And through this, God is trying to give comfort to the Israelites of his great plan. Well, if uh, you hear the word apocalypse, apocalyptic, maybe you think of the movie Apocalypse Now. Maybe you think of, I always think of my brother's paintball field, which is called Apocalypse Paintball. Um, But... It also, it gives this idea of the end of the world, something, some great, great battle. But the actual meaning of it in the Greek wording is to unveil or to uncover. 
We see moments of apocalyptic literature throughout Scripture in Ezekiel and Joel and Isaiah. But we see larger sections of it in the book of Daniel here in 7 through 12, and of course the book many of us know about, Revelation. The goal is to interpret in apocalyptic literature earthly circumstances in light of the supernatural world by giving us very vivid imagery and symbolism. And in this, we are given divine insight of the ultimate significance of the events of history, even our current conflicts with the people of God. It's an expression of the more deep, sinister conflict between the powers of darkness and the power of God and his throne and his kingdom. What's true in prophetic and apocalyptic literature, I see it a lot like a pirate spyglass, right, that goes out and extends. You think about it, prophetic and apocalyptic literature looks clearly at what's happening at the circumstances just ahead in the future or even the current. And then it's extended even more to what's maybe seen in the gospel story, what's seen in Jesus and his life and this grand narrative of what God is doing. And then you can extend the spyglass even further in what we call eschatology, the end of the world, the future. And so this literature is looking at all of this as it looks through the symbolism. The near future, ultimately this grand narrative of God's rescue, the gospel, and then the end, eschatology. The style of apocalyptic literature is less cerebral, it's more imaginative. It's not simply storytelling, it's movie-going. It's not black and white, it's technicolor. And so much technicolor and so much movie-going, it brings terror to those that read it. You see that Daniel is, in verse 15, under much terror when going through this experience. He is flushed and loses his color because of what he is seeing. Why? Why such vivid imagery? Maybe because when the people feel like they are out of control of kingdoms going around them, or they feel like they do not have idea of the future or that understanding. Here, this vivid imagery gives them kind of awakening of the battle that is happening. Concepts that are beyond what they can even imagine to get their attention of what God is doing in, in even a very complex situation that they are experiencing that there is something even greater and grander and more horrific than they could even imagine. Maybe it's a lot like going to see Marvel's Endgame, right? Where all this is built up at the end and you saw at the end of the movie these portals that opened up and the superheroes enter the battle and the bad guys enter the battle and it's just this vivid experience. It's probably some of the times I've been to where you can just feel the palpitation in the theater. The people are clapping and cheering and gasping as all of this is unveiled in one great battle. Whether it's horror movies or Marvel or DC Comics, I think people know that the human condition, there is something greater. Whether reading 
there was plastic gain in literature, that there was this idea in the human condition there's something grand and great and bigger than we can ever imagine that is happening around us. And that is what this apocalyptic literature is trying to bring us into. Well, what we have at the beginning here, the passage is four beasts. And Daniel uses images that are not foreign to what we read in Scripture. In Genesis, we realize that the waters and the seas are an example of the great chaos of the world, but it's all under God's heaven and his control. We see the same kind of language in the book of Job. And here, out of this chaos, out of this evil, becomes these four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and this beast with ten horns. And later on in chapter 7, it says these beasts represent four kings. We know that Babylon was represented a lot by a lion. And it makes sense that the things that are mentioned here, the idea that this lion is on two feet in the mind of a man, might remind us again of what happened and was experienced with Nebuchadnezzar. And brings to attention that. The bear, the Persians, who again had these ribs in their mouths, how wicked they were. The leopard, the Greeks, and Alexander the Great in his death after four people took over these four wings. This last beast, this Roman Empire is probably what it's talking about. And these horns, which represents kings, talking about all the Caesars that took over after the Roman Empire was established. Classically, in church history, it's been represented, these four beasts represent these four empires. First again, the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Maybe some of you have been in church long enough that you realize that much ink has been spilled on apocalyptic literature and much opinions have been brought about apocalyptic literature through church history. What they mean, what they represent, all of these kind of things. And many times what happens is, in church history, that we have lost the forest for the trees. See, the main idea when we are reading this kind of stuff is that earthly kingdoms are at war against God and his kingdom. It's not simply isolated to that, that there are spiritual forces and powers and the evil that lie beneath it. But ultimately, they derive their power from God, the king of all. I think there are two equal and opposite errors when we look at apocalyptic literature. One is people being self-assured is that they can look at what's going on right now and say it refers to this beast or this symbol. This has happened throughout church history. People have assigned beasts to Islam or Napoleon or the Ottoman Empire in World War I or Germany in World War II or the USSR in the Cold War or Saddam Hussein in the Iraq War or today China. And many of these people have been proven to be false prophets. 
because they make it temporal and earthly rather than seeing the heavenly battle that is going on. But we can also make an equal and opposite error. We can see that history is not seen as a battle between the fallen kingdom and God's promise for humanity. We can say there is no sin or evil, that there are nations and cultures that are not influenced by the devil or Satan. And we also can say that the world should not be seen through God's saving plan. And there's an unbelief that one day God will come again to judge the living and the dead. These are two equal and opposite errors. One again, picking up our paper and saying, here is the beast, this circumstance right here. And equally to say, all that there is is the natural world. There is no cosmic battle that is after our hearts and mind. And I believe that God is not coming again to remake the world. Some of you might fall in one of these two categories. I don't know. I haven't had a lot of eschatological conversations with some of you. Maybe you fall into one of those categories. I would love to talk to you. I'm sure David would too. Wouldn't you, David? You'd love to have some apocalyptic conversations, wouldn't you? I just volunteered you. Congratulations. About these things, now I know some of us come from some of these traditions. Some of us don't come from tradition at all. And just the idea of this kind of stuff is weird and different. I get it. Love to talk to you more about that. But we're going to be going through this for the next month, so I just wanted to prepare you as we go through it, some understanding, some background of apocalyptic literature, and also some dangers when reading it. Well, next we go somewhere else, don't we? Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. We've been transported from the beast to the throne room. What is this? This Ancient of Days. We sung it this morning. It's in a lot of hymns, actually, and a lot of songs. Who is this? Well, Job talks about God as being having days that are unsearchable. This Ancient of Days is one that is a first-hand spectator of all that is happening, past, present, and future. The Ancient of Days are not confined by time or by rulers. We also, a definition of this Ancient of Days, wise and set apart his hair, right? His hair like pure wool. That's the idea of purity and being set apart, Right? His clothing was white as snow. This idea of this character of wisdom and great difference. His throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. So again, his throne is not confined to a place. It can go anywhere it wants to. It's omnipresent. This idea of fire that is something that can refine and judge. we see that thousands, a thousand thousand serve him. That 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The idea of the one million that serve him, the hundred million that stood before him. This is a throng of so, so many 
servants, whether it's angels or saints through history. And from this throne, he judges. The books are opened of people and nations and who they are. And then we see the beast who speaks these great things. He is killed and judged. And his dominion is taken away by this ancient of days. This is a picture of who God is. That he is above all these beasts. He is above all these things. His throne room is so great. If you read the book of Dune, there's all these nations that are uh, are worlds or houses that come from different planets. And they all conspire against the Fremen on, on Arrakis. Right? And they're all plans and ideas and they're represented by hawks or rams, all these symbols. And they have this great horror of their power. And you see they're all conspiring against the people on the planet Arrakis. And there's this grand thing in Dune that what happens is, again, these Fremen, they ride upon these great sandworms and plow into where all these people are secretly meeting. And it's the idea that their power is so much grander and greater than all the conspiring of the world against them. It's this vivid imagery of the power of God and how good He is and how great He is and how He sees all things. He is the Ancient of Days. Imagine Daniel and his companions and the Israelites being pushed from place to place Nation after nation is powerful and removes them and takes them and just the diaspora of Israel. What can the Lord do? You might feel like they've been overlooked by the kingdoms of this world. And here God shows them there is the veil has been opened to see his grand plan and how he is the one that sits above all to make judgment that he is good, that he knows what's going on, that his angels are his servants, and that he can take the beast and defeat it like that. famous story of a missionary for many, many years and now no longer able to serve in Africa returns back to the United States by ship. He's in not good health, does not have a retirement fund to come back to, returns back to the port and he realizes there's really no one there to greet him. But he's booked on the same boat as a celebrity. Celebrity that went across the sea to do a little tour or whatever it might be. And as the ship docks, he has no one to greet him from all of his years of service in Africa. And then he sees the celebrity that was gone for a month and all these people cheering for them. He recites how he was bitter and angry. And there on the side of the ship, 
Lord spoke to him and said, You are not home yet. There is something going on greater than you realized. The great ancient of days is conducting a battle and his kingdom will be eternal. He is victorious. And his kingdom will be given, as it says later in chapter 7, to his saints. To us. It is encouragement to those who are discouraged. Many have noticed as we've gone through the book of Daniel, there is this language that continues over and over again. And it's not just spoken by Daniel or his friends, but it's spoken by Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. And they all say this about Daniel's God. His dominion is everlasting. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. And here that language is repeated again. But we see something different. Let's look, shall we? Verse 13. I saw it in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's saying that the ancient of days, this grand God, God himself, is giving this to one like the Son of Man. Let's get this right. This is a person other kingdoms and these great rulers that had empires that were greater than ever had been existed on the face of the planet. And the kingdoms have not been given to them, but it's given to this Son of Man. Something tangible, physical, not something just ethereal or out there. So it's speculation in Jewish history who this is. Is it Daniel? Is it simply symbolism? Is it a Messiah? Someone that would live in a way other than the kings. Someone that lives different than any man could live. Someone unlike Adam. A character that could actually rescue and save. Someone that was given the kingdom to reign in the right way, an everlasting kingdom. Um, dominion, an everlasting kingdom. Again, fantasy and technicolor, we see these kind of themes throughout history. In Dune, they called this character the Quasit Hayak. 
but one that you unite all the houses together to bring peace and freedom to the galaxy. In my way, it's not the Cena Man, it's Iron Man. The one that could carry the Infinity Stones and defeat Thanos. It's crazy. I mean, you laugh about these themes, but I remember being in the theater and I remember hearing someone weeping when Iron Man died. Weeping. That's how serious it is for people. How much they care about this stuff. A rescuer. A hero. Who is this? Could there be a son of man? Jesus himself uses this title of who he is more than any other one, calling himself the Son of Man 82 times in the Gospel. No one else, this is very intriguing, no one else in the Gospels calls Jesus the Son of Man. What's intriguing is the Son of Man can just be a reference to being a human, a Son of Man, right? You're born of person. And that's why people throughout the scriptures and the gospels, they're kind of like, what is he saying when he's saying this? He says it after he heals people. He says it after he says he has the ability to forgive sins. He says it after talking about the kingdom of God. But probably the most interesting time that Jesus talks about it is when he's before the high priest, before his execution. And the high priests are questioning him, and there's testimonies and all these things, and it says, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus was silent. He was silent. He was silent. And finally, the high priests, they're fed up, and they ask him, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And what do the high priests do? They tear their clothes from what he just said. They condemn him and they charge him for execution for saying that. This is why you should die. Blasphemy for saying this. Why were they so angry about him saying he was the son of man? Because they knew what he was saying. He was referring back to Daniel chapter 7. Think on this. The God of the universe has given him a power and dominion, a kingdom that will never end. And he is saying, he is the one that has been given given this from God himself. You know, some of us read apocalyptic literature, 
I know some of my friends in college would read this stuff, and it's and they would say things like this. It sounds like this guy's just on a bad trip. Maybe that's what you think, reading the Bible. All this just religious stuff, visions and dreams, it's not real. Let me speak to all of us, maybe those that doubt. If we're honest, and we see what's going on in our world, we do not need visions to see the horror and the atrocities The beasts that devour people, our families, our own lives. And that causes people, instead of actually seeing these beasts in this cosmic battle that's happening, to numb themselves with addictions, with drugs with alcohol, to give up. To watch movies where there are monsters and horror, to actually not deal with the monsters and horror that we are feeling internally in our own lives. Maybe you might open your eyes to the technicolor that has come to earth. the Son of Man has dwelt among us. He has come to the beasts and the evil and the monsters as Emmanuel. God with us. And he has brought victory as the Son of Man through his death and his resurrection. We can read this heavenly lens to see the horror of the enemies that are around us, but then to find hope in God's victory plan. I'll leave you with this. In 1945, Alfred Delp, a Jesuit priest, wrote this in a Nazi prison before his execution. Here was a man facing real-life monsters. And the irony of what he says is that it's so true for us today. Please listen attentively as I read what Alfred Delp says before he was executed by the Nazis. The world today needs people who have been shaken by ultimate calamities and emerge from them with the knowledge and awareness that those who look to the Lord will still be preserved by Him, even if they are hounded from the earth. Space is still filled with the noise of destruction and annihilation, the shouts of self-assurance and arrogance, the weeping of despair and helplessness. But just beyond the horizon, the eternal realities stand silent in their age-old longing. 
There are signs on the Easter face now and wait for their radiant fulfillment to come. And we see all the signs the face notes as it pipes and sing, not yet discernible as a song or melody. It is of all else still and only just announced and foretold. But it is happening. This is today. And tomorrow the angels will tell what happened with loud rejoicing voices. And we shall know and be glad if we have believed and trust in Advent. This is what we celebrate right now. The darkness, the evil. You might be very clear in your life or maybe you just think about it in the national stage or the geopolitical stage. I don't know how you think about that evil. But we celebrate that the light has come. The Son of Man has been given his kingdom and he reigns and he has broken the bonds of sin and death. And that one day he will come again. And he will reign forever. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be no more weeping or no more wars or no more tears. And our plowshares and swords will be melted down. And there will be a kingdom. Christian, let the heavenlies be opened to you and let you see this cosmic battle that has been won by the Son of Man. That you might live in hope with what you are facing with those around you. There is a great hope in Advent that our King has come and he will come again.